right. Uh, so thank you, uh, everyone, as always, for coming. Uh, today's colloquium session is organized by the two cohorts of Ag Biofuse Fellows, uh, and it's going to be a panel discussion of three great people. Uh, so we have our own Jennifer Kuzma, uh, Bob cook Deegan from Arizona State, and Dave Levitan. Uh, and the topic is uh, about the Biden administration's science policy arm and the particular appointments within it. Uh, I really encourage you during the speaker's initial remarks to put any questions in the chat um, so that we can arrange those for the Q&A. Um, but of course, you'll also be able to have uh, an in-person session uh, once they're done with their first remarks. Uh, so for now, I'm going to turn it over to Dalton to uh, start introducing our speakers in more depth. I think it's um, Amanda first, actually. To Amanda. Thank you very much. Um, so I'd like to introduce Dr. Jennifer Kuzma. Dr. Jennifer Kuzma holds a PhD in biochemistry from the University of Colorado Boulder, where she discovered bacteria's ability to produce isoprene, an important chemical used in rubber medicine and pesticide production. She has applied her scientific expertise in the field of emerging technologies, risk analysis, regulatory policy, and governance for over 25 years. And in this space, she has published more than 120 scholarly papers and held many prestigious leadership positions at national, local, and international levels. She is presently a distinguished professor here at NC State's School of Public and International Affairs and is the co-founder and co-director of the Genetic Engineering and Society Center. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Kuzma. I think um, Dalton will be introducing our next speaker. Yep, and uh, our second speaker for today is uh, Dr. Cook, uh, Robert Cook Deegan, who is um, a professor and core faculty at the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Consortium for Science Policy and Outcomes at Arizona State University. Um, the GES Center has collaborated with the a with Dr. Cook Deegan and his associates several times in the past for research activities. Um, Dr. Cook Deegan's research interests span across fields in science and health policy, biomed research, and in intellectual property, um, across which he's authored more than 300 diverse publications. Um, before he at, before ASU, he was actually pretty local, uh, just across the triangle at Duke, uh, where he founded and directed uh, Duke Center for uh, Genome Ethics, Law and Policy for a while. And prior to Duke, um, uh, Dr. Cook Deegan had quite a lot of experience built on the Hill, so to speak, uh, working at several well-known DC institutions, including the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, as well as the National Center for Human Genome Research. And before that, he uh, really cut his teeth, if, if, if it's fair to say, at the Congressional Office of Technology Assessment. Um, so a lot of diverse experience Dr. Cook Deegan's bringing to the um, floor today, and we're really lucky to have him. So thank you very much, Dr. Dr. Cook Deegan, for being with us today. Hey, I'm introducing the final panelist, um, Mr. Dave Levitan. He is a science journalist and author of a book titled Not a Scientist, How Politicians Mistake, Misrepresent, and Utterly Mangle Science. Um, Mr. Levitan has an undergraduate degree from Haverford College and a master's degree in journalism from NYU. And he has been a prolific writer. If you check out his website, there are works from Slate, The Atlantic, Washington Post, um, pretty much any news source you can think of, he's written stuff and he's an expert in following sort of the science advisor and the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the federal government. And I highly encourage you to read one of his articles that looks at the origin and evolution of the position from the Truman um, era all the way to now with the Biden administration. So we are very fortunate to have Mr. Levitin here with us. Thank you, everyone, and we'll start with Dr. Kuzma. Great. Well, thank you very much to the Egg Biofuse students for putting this together. Great idea. It was all yours, and I appreciate the introduction, Amanda. And I also want to thank Bob and Dave for being here, too, and taking your time, you know, getting, getting two really um, high-level uh, science policy experts to, to join us for the GS Colloquium. So I have a few slides just as by way of introduction to... Um, to the OSTP and its role in, in biotech regulatory policy. So let me just start these, if my computer will let me. Can you all see my slides? Yeah, we got them. Okay, for some reason, the screen sharing button is not working. My computer's a little stuck. So I'm just gonna go with what I have. Um, so 
the Office of Science and Technology Policy um, was created in 1976. Although there were precursor organizations that resembled it a, a bit, um, and the primary function is for the OSTP director is to provide within the executive office of the president advice on scientific and engineering and technology aspects that require attention at the highest level of government. And that the office itself serves as a source of scientific and technological analysis and judgment for the president um, for major policies, plans, and programs of the federal government. So kinds of things like funding initiatives, sometimes regulatory initiatives, like we'll see with OSTP roles in biotechnology um, policy, technology and innovation initiatives, STEM education initiatives. And what OSTP takes on has depended over time on the history and what's important um, to society at the time, but also the interests of the directors. So we'll get to that um, later. But here's an organization uh, chart of a gen very general organization's chart of OSTP from a, a Congressional Research uh, Service report that was just um, uh, published a year about a year or so ago. So it again, it exists under the President of the United States, um, the OSTP director. And the OSP director is a co-chair of the National Science and Technology Council, which is our representatives from all the various federal agencies that deal with science and technology. So that's kind of an in, intra-government kind of body, but also co-chairs with an external member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, or what we call PCAST. And these are external advisors. So they may come from industry, academe, um, nonprofits, um, et cetera. And then under the director, there are a variety of associate directors or assistant directors that have changed over time, depending on the administration and a variety under there of policy advisors, analysts, administration and communications people. Um, another organization that is a liaison to OSTP is the Science and Technology Policy Institute or STIPI as we like to call it. Um, and that is more of a policy analysis think tank institute. It's a federally funded research and development corporation, FFRDCs we call them, that is part of liaises with OSTP on policy analysis, if you will. So different things, again, can range all the way from artificial intelligence initiatives, which have been big in the last 10 years, um, to uh, bioterrorism, which was really big in, in the early 2000s with 9-11, uh, to STEM education and diversity, um, and so on and so forth. Climate change and, and a variety of topics can be taken on by OSTP. Now, the role of the OSTP director, and Dave has written about this, I won't go into great detail, but the OSTP director can also be appointed as assistant to the president for science and technology. And it gives um, the director a bit, of, a bit more status, if you will, um, in the provision of confidential advice um, with the president. And it is some indication whether a president appoints uh, OSTP director as assistant to the president as to how much the president values scientific input in a way. Um, that's how it's interpreted over time. And as we all know here, um, and, and what the students were very interested is Biden's Eric Lander was not only appointed or proposed or nominated as director of OSDP and APST, but also proposed as a cabinet level position for the first time. Um, so that's an exciting um, part to the scientific and technology policy community that I'll let Bob and, and Dave talk more about. But here's a chart from um, Jennifer. The, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry to interrupt you, but um, we've got a couple of requests from the uh, uh, attendees. If you could go full screen with your. Yeah. Is that OK? Yep. Thank you very much. Sorry. For I'm trying. My computer's stuck for some reason. It's behaving very strangely right now. Oh, OK, so let me see if I can at least do this. Does that help a little bit, maybe? Sure. Yeah. If there's something wrong with your computer, that's fine. Yeah, it's really stuck. It's very bizarre. It doesn't usually do this. I apologize. Maybe the number of people on the Zoom, perhaps. Um, so let me back up. Okay. So Congress appropriate. Uh, oops, where am I now? Okay. So so over time, this has uh, presidents have either appointed um, the OSTP director as assistant to the president or not. And you can see I put in blue arrows here that George H.W. Bush actually did, Clinton did, and Obama did, but uh, George W. Bush and Trump did not. So that's all I wanted to show with that. The ap approximate budget for OSDP is about five to 10 million a year, um, but also another five million is appropriated from M um, uh, NSF to STIPI, and another about one million for PCAS or from DOE. 
And so you can see the OSDP funding, how it has changed over time, relatively kind of constant in recent years, but you can see this bit of dip in the Trump administration. It really took two years for the Trump administration to nominate the director, um, get it confirmed for OSTP and to really staff up OSTP, not until 2019. And same with the staffing over time, you can see that dip in the recent Trump administration just starting to be built back up in the last two years of the administration. So again, Biden's OSTP leaders are coming from areas that GS really cares about. Um, Eric Lander is, has a background in mathematics, biotechnology, bioinforma bioinformatics. And then we're also very excited about Alondra Nelson, who has an STS sociology gender studies background and is nominated as deputy director for science and society. So this bodes really well for the kind of work that we care about, the nexus of biotechnology and society. So one possibility that may occur in the Biden, this is where I get a bit speculative, um, OSTP funding policy example. One historical example was the National Nanotechnology Initiative, which was an interagency funding policy for nanotechnology R&D that was um, uh, occurred from 2000 to the present. And it was housed under OSTP's National Science and Technology Council, Committee on Technology, and then they had subcommittees under that to um, administer and, and to coordinate this National Nanotechnology Initiative. Well, Neil Lane was the um, OSTP director at the time under Clinton, and he was molecular physics. So he was very interested personally in nanotechnology. And so he and Mike Rocco and others um, were kind of partly the spark and maybe mostly the spark for this initiative. And since the early days, this National Nanotechnology Initiative incorporated ethical, legal, and societal implications um, at the tune of about 1% to 5%. And so one hypothetical possibility was given the interests of the OSTP uh, uh, director and deputy director is could there be a National Biotechnology Initiative with LC components funded? Um, that's something that um, I'd love to see, and I know many of us in this room would, would like to see. So it looks like I'm at the seven minute mark um, and I'm just going to quickly jump ahead and say in the regulatory policy space, OSTP has also taken on a, a role in the coordinated framework and so to regulate biotechnology. So what's going to happen here, I can't really speculate, but OSTP in the past has been involved in establishing the coordinated framework for the regulation of biotechnology and reviewing it both in the Clinton administration and the Obama administration. So another possibility might be more activity in that space, although I don't think things like the USDA secure rule is going to be revoked at this latest stage, given all that's been invested in putting that on the ground and getting it implemented. I think I'll just stop there in the interest of giving my other panelists enough time. So thank you. Thank you. And um, Dr. Cook Deegan, um, if you can unmute yourself. Yeah. So let me pick up where uh, Jennifer left off. So just to summarize what Jennifer's talked about, basically there are several points of convergence in how the U.S. system of uh, science and technology policy is organized. Um, in the post-war period, you'll remember that, that uh, Van Iver Bush at the end of World War II had President Roosevelt write him a letter saying, please tell me what we should do with science and technology after the war ends. Um, and that was a famous letter to, that led to probably the most important science policy document in American history, which was Science the Endless Frontier. And basically, um, that was the argument that scientists should be left to their own. And science was super important for all the things that are good that creates wealth and helped us win the war. Um, and we should continue to support science as a federal responsibility because nobody else will do it. Um, and uh, actually, Bush also argued that it was absolutely essential that it be done in a single agency, which he called his National Research Foundation. Um, and we're really lucky that he failed to achieve that um, because what happened after the war is there was a huge debate. Um, he'd written his report for uh, President Roosevelt, but uh, Roosevelt died in April of 1945 and the report didn't come out till July, just a month before. In fact, it came out one week after the Trinity test had exploded in the desert in uh, New Mexico and just a few weeks before the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
opening the atomic era. Um, but that meant that Bush couldn't talk about the Manhattan Project in his report. Um, and he had to reconfigure his report to the Truman administration because Truman was much more of a populist uh, Democrat from the Kansas City area who's kind of a product of, of machine politics from Kansas rather than um, this rather patrician organization that had existed under FDR. Um, what happened in the five years after Truman vetoed the National Research Foundation bill that was built on the template that Bush proposed was that the National Institutes of Health grew to a $50 million agency before 1950. The military services built their own research apparatus um, under themselves. And um, so basically the big accounts that we think of now as supporting science in the United States, um, the, the two biggest accounts actually went on their own way and they stayed within mission agencies. So that if you wanted to boost uh, a lot of spending for high energy physics, you would do that through the Atomic Energy Commission. Um, and uh, so what it meant is you didn't have to make trade-offs within a science ministry. Um, and so molecular biology flourished in the 1950s, 1960s. And what we have is a super decentralized pluralistic system in the United States that deviated sharply from the system of governance that, uh, that Bush argued for, which was basically give scientists money, tell them to solve problems, but also support basic research and leave them alone. And Truman was gonna have none of that. So, uh, and we're very lucky that out of a compromise, neither polar group won. And what we did was the classic American muddling through that led to a really, really healthy science and technology enterprise that carried us for five decades until, you know, sometime in the 1980s, it began to stall. And we can talk about why that happened. I mention all that history because we're at a moment now where the first question that Bush asked himself through Roosevelt was what are we gonna do with science and technology after the war? Well, in addition to the things that Jennifer talked about in connection with OSTP, um, Biden, as he announced that Eric Lander and Alondra Nelson were gonna head up this new office, also sent them a letter that's modeled explicitly. I don't know who wrote this. Maybe Dave, you can tell us if you know. I don't know who wrote this letter, but um, the letter basically completely and explicitly models itself on the letter that Roosevelt wrote to Bush. And one of Eric Lander and Alondra Nelson's tasks is to answer five questions that the president has posed to his science advisor, who is now for the first time going to be a member of the cabinet. The first question is, what are we gonna do with science and technology after the pandemic? Mirroring exactly what are we gonna do after the war? Um, so uh, Eric Lander and Alondra Nelson carry a, a heavier burden than usual for the OSTP. OSTP has been, Jennifer didn't quite say this, but basically OSTP is usually not a power player in the federal constellation. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a place where sometimes some issues come to rest. For example, in the late 1980s, how are we gonna regulate biotechnology? That actually was handled primarily at OSTP. Every once in a while, a new initiative like nanotech will come up and that will be managed. Those tend to be um, initiatives that require multiple organizations that are more or less equally powerful. And it makes sense to delegate the coordination function to a White House office. Um, so uh, I don't know what OSTP is gonna be doing, but it seems like it's likely to be a more important uh, player in the science policy apparatus than it has been in recent years. And actually under Clinton and under Obama, OSDP was, was staffed up and much more interventionist than it had been uh, historically. So, but I'm guessing that it's gonna be uh, even more uh, conspicuous under Lander and Nelson. Um, another thing to observe is that this is the first time, Alondra Nelson's appointment is kind of a big deal. It's the first time that the White House Science Office has actually recognized a social scientist as being part of the decision-making apparatus. That's a really big deal. 
it's not just that she does science and technology studies, although she does that. But actually, if you read her book, what she did, she goes out and talks to people and said, hey, why are you getting genetic tests? What are you interested in? And um, she's got a very different take on what science and technology can do. It's a really nice counterpoise to uh, Eric Lander. Eric is, of course, mainly known for having uh, led first the White House Institute and now the Broad Institute at Harvard and MIT, and one of the five leaders of the Human Genome Project. So in, in a way, we're getting the band back together with Francis Collins staying at National Institutes of Health and Eric Lander at OSTP. And we got the Genome Project on a global scale at the level of the White House instead of at the level of NIH. So I've probably wandered around enough, but I hope I've floated enough ideas that maybe we can have something of a discussion. Uh, thank you. And uh, Mr. Levitan, if you could unmute yourself. Sure. Um, so yeah, thank you for, uh, for the invite. Uh, and for organizing this, this is a, a fun topic to discuss. Um, I, I, I have been mildly obsessed with OSTP over my career, so this is kind of a fun thing to do. Um, but uh, I was also going to go through some of some of the history. And, um, uh, Dr. Cook Deegan did a did a great job with that, so I'm going to maybe just sort of take a, a little bit of a step back on some of the stuff and um, just give what I think are, are are some sort of points about how the office has evolved and stuff. Um, I do think um, what he was talking about, how the, the the idea of sort of a centralized apparatus versus this more decentralized muddle through kind of thing, that that is, uh, I agree that that is sort of a really important part of the history. There was this big debate over what most people were just calling a department of science at some point. And it was actually one of the science advisors um, in the 60s. I, I believe it was um, Jerry Wiesner, uh, who was Nixon's first science advisor. Uh, who basically shot down the idea for the last time. I mean, it had already been shot down by that point, but he said it would be akin to having a department of typewriters because everyone across government was using typewriters and it doesn't make sense to have a department for them. So that was his argument about science. It was spreading out into you know every corner of policymaking. So um, just a, a little tidbit about how this, the science advisor at least was, was at least partially involved with that discussion. Um, in terms of, of how different it is to have Eric Lander, um, you know, be from the, the world of, of biotech and, and genetics and, and all that, I, I think it really is a, a pretty so, like solid difference based on, on the position's history. Um, every other one of them was, you know, was a physicist or an engineer. Uh, and I do think that that meant that the things that that you know the the government focused on probably did change because of that. I mean, it's it's a tough thing to quantify, of course, but you know some of the the issues that um, that really became sort of the scientific benchmark issues for for the federal government, things like the space race um, and uh, the supersonic transport was a big deal, and missile defense systems um, were were a huge issue over over the years, especially you know in in the eighties when the Star Wars initiative. Um, became sort of a flashpoint uh, for, for everyone. And again, this was um, something that the that OSTP and in particular uh, Reagan science advisor, George Keyworth, really sort of stumped for. So they, they've had this role of sort of sometimes being cheerleaders for administration priorities. Um, and as, as you know, we've, we've already heard they they don't have a ton of power necessarily. It's not. It's not an agency that's that's you know it's not doesn't carry any budgetary power. It doesn't carry any um, real sort of like sway in terms of what the administration's priorities are. But they do probably um, help guide the the executive branch's priorities. And and I'll tell a little quick story just to to illustrate that. Um, toward the end of the Obama administration, I, I interviewed John Holdren, his science advisor. And he, he really wanted me to understand that the, the key to being sort of an effective science advisor to the president is, is not necessarily what you do at OSTP, not necessarily um, sort of how you approach it, but whether the president seeks out your advice. Um, and obviously that's not something you can necessarily control. For Holdren, he had, he had met um, Obama before uh, he was elected and they had sort of hit it off. And so I, I think there was already like a connection there. Um, so he, uh, Obama used to, you know, put sticky notes on, on things, 
articles or papers that said, I need to know what Holdren says about this. So he was he was definitely sort of um, interested in, in that. And so in terms of whether Biden will handle it that way, I mean, who knows, right? I mean, it's, it's not something that we can really know yet. I think his, uh, uh, his decision to appoint um, Eric Lander and Alondra Nelson suggests that he, you know, cares about certain things and suggests that he would listen to them, but that's not the kind of thing we can really know. And, and through the history, again, of, of the position, there is, there's lots of examples of, of presidents not wanting to hear from their science advisors, which meant that some of the priorities, you know, sort of, sort of did change. And Nixon is the obvious one because they actually abolished the position after he, after two straight advisors resigned, um, he just didn't appoint another one. So that eventually did lead to the, to the 1976 formation of OSTP officially by statute, I think. But um, there, there is sort of an open question of how, um, how the president approaches that relationship. And I, I think just from a sort of a, a step back point of view, I, I think that that is what's going to make the difference uh, in this administration. If if the things that Eric Lander is expert in or that Alondra Nelson is, is expert in are going to become priorities of the administration, it, it sort of requires buy-in on their part, just based on the history of, of the role. Um, so I think because uh, we did have some overlap in our, in our, what we were gonna talk about, I will, I will stop there. Maybe we could just start getting into some of the questions, um, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. So uh, I think the easiest way to handle this might be if the three speakers um, can stay unmuted or unmute yourself as you need. Uh, and anyone who wants to ask a question can either raise your hand uh, or uh, type it in the chat. Uh, so I'll kick it off with a question from Eric uh, Jungst. Uh, he says, I read today in The Scientist that the Biden administration is proposing a DARPA-like program for research on health issues at NIH and another on climate issues at DOE. Uh, what do you think of DARPA as a model for advancing science in these areas? Uh, and does that leave more or less room for STS? So I'll, I'll leap into the breach here. So, so the, the DARPA idea has been kicking around for 25 years. Uh, the Institute of Medicine recommended a DARPA for NIH uh, in a report that came out uh, about, I don't know, 15, 17 years ago. Um, and this has been kicking around within the Biden administration, the transition team, um, and it's being pushed by uh, the Susan Wright Foundation, among other things, although there's gonna be a bit of a fight about whether it's an independent agency or whether it's folded within NIH. Um, and uh, we'll see where that goes. One of the things that uh, Biden announced was that in addition to being a science advisor, a member of the cabinet, answering the questions about science, the endless frontier for 2021, Eric Lander is also supposed to cure cancer. Um, so uh, we're back to the very same debate that we had in the early 1970s about the war on cancer and NIH being too slow, inertial, ponderous, risk averse, and we need a DARPA-like function within NIH or within health. The Susan Wright Foundation wants it as a separate entity that's separate, much as Mary Lasker wanted NCI pulled out of NIH so that it would be more independent and answer directly to the president. And you have Francis Collins and a legion of folks who would like to keep this function within the NIH. Um, so that's one idea. And I actually think it may actually happen. Uh, the proposed budget is six and a half billion dollars. I don't know how you spend that in one year and stand up an agency with this within the same year. Uh, we'll see what happens there. Um, the idea for climate change though is much different if you think about it because there is no lead agency for climate change. EPA doesn't do that, Department of Energy doesn't do that. Um, and it's gonna be spread, the USDA is gonna be involved every, this is something that actually would kind of fit under uh, a, a coordination function, but it can't just be coordination of agencies as they exist. Climate change requires people to make decisions and spend money. And we don't have an entity within our government that does that. So I'm, I'm both excited about that idea, but very confused about how that's gonna be uh, distributed through the federal government. And uh, we'll see what happens there. I'm very interested in what, uh, what Jennifer and Dave have to say about that. I think it's the kind of the climate issue as well as kind of the biotechnology issue 
are good ones for OSTP to tackle. I've often thought that they should have a bigger role in coordination, especially in, in regulatory agencies as there are gaps and redundancies for regulation of biotech products. So I, I've always wished that there was kind of a, a bigger force field at OSTP to have more power because as you know, they don't have this budget budget authority, it, it, it's distributed among agencies. So, but I, I, I think I'd be excited about um, the climate the climate DARPA model, even though it may not fit very nicely, and, and NIH as well. I mean, we don't take enough high risk, um, potentially high reward at NIH for sure in their funding model. And there's been a lot of talk about that for many years about how um, they typically go to senior investigators that have you know published results already, and 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 so we need to take be taking more risk in in both of those areas. I think. But how it would work out on paper, I think, could be very tricky. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the the health the uh, side of things, I mean, um, I think your your point at the end there that that you know that grant making tends to go to senior investigators, tends to go to established investigators, and and even even on that side of things, they're sort of very risk averse. In a weird way, um, it's almost like there's two questions here. I mean, you if you could just increase NIH's budget, right? <laughs> you could just do it that way. And then suddenly you have more money to give to, to go further down the list of grant applications. Um, that's, that's one thing to do, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really fundamentally alter how, how that agency works. So I think that the DARPA style idea is a very good one. And, and, you know, as you both said, it's been around for a while. I don't see any reason why not to try it. Um, I, the the cure curing cancer side of things that has been another one of my obsessions for years. It is I absolutely hate that terminology. It, it makes me very very sort of frustrated when prominent politicians use that because it's just kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of of cancer and of biomedical research. So I, I wish they would stop saying that. But if you're going to do if you're going to say it, then the DARPA model at least maybe gets you closer because the idea is to have sort of a transformational approach. Uh, uh, an approach that is not just incremental improvement, which is basically how cancer research has gone um, throughout our throughout NIH's history. Um, on the the climate side of things, I find that one sort of interesting because I mean we already have ARPA-E, right? Which I mean uh, has done very very good work on on energy and energy technology for a while now, um, and. I understand it's not exactly the same thing, but it's certainly sort of a cousin, I guess, of a more general um, climate approach. I, I think um, that that it's right that, that having OSTP act as a sort of uh, umbrella organization for that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I don't know if it's going to happen, um, but it, it they do sort of have that that degree of expertise in terms of, of reaching across government agencies and and getting getting the different agencies to cooperate, I think is, is kind of a, a bit of expertise that OSCP has. So that, that, that sort of does make sense to me. Just to, just to double click on one aspect of the, um, the, the similarity to the post-war period and Van Iver Bush and the science the endless frontier and this idea of a DARPA. Um, if you look at the history, one of the things that all of us are asking ourselves is the elephant in the room right now is the pandemic changed things big time. It changed science and technology among many, many, many other things. And as everybody on this, uh, on this, uh, on the screen now knows what the United States was rated number one in the world for being ready to, to react to a pandemic. And, and yet we've done a arguably the worst job of among all developed economies in dealing with it with the single exception of the vaccine. Um, and the vaccine story is really interesting, and it's, it really does fuel the debate about a DARPA, because if you look at the seminal invention from 2005 that gave rise to the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines that seemed to be the most effective, it was a postdoc who actually got demoted at University of Pennsylvania because she couldn't get grants from NIH, um, and it was because nobody believed that fiddling with RNA was ever going to work. Um, and uh, she had a very simple idea of substituting uridyl for uh, a pseudo uridine for, for uridine and 
stabilizing the RNA and all that. So that was the seminal idea that gave rise to both of the vaccines that have been most successful. And it almost died given our current uh, framework. So it's ideas like that that actually do support the idea we do need something like a DARPA to augment what uh, NIH can do. The other thing to observe is uh, I, my prediction is that it's gonna stay within NIH. And I think NIH is gonna have a pretty compelling argument that in fact, sometimes we do do stuff like that. Um, Eric asked the question about DARPA um, and he was at uh, NHGRI, actually at the National Center and then NHGRI um, when these decisions were made. But NHGRI did something that was really remarkable and very DARPA-like, which was to foster DNA sequencing technology. And that is the technology that allowed us very quickly to sequence the virus. And once that information was out, that information was, they didn't have access to the, to the virus itself at Pfizer or Moderna um, or at the, the German biotech, BioNTech, um, where the vaccines were first formulated. What they, all they needed was the sequence. And they were able to very quickly, within weeks, have uh, the first drafts of vaccines that they could uh, begin to test. So the idea of we need something at the front end to push a tech push mechanism within biotech, I think is gonna actually probably have legs and I think it'll probably stay within NIH, but we'll see. Uh, thank you. Um, this may be a related question from Raul Medina. Um, asking, do you think the current challenges we're facing, climate change, biodiversity, disease, have reached a magnitude that demands a rethinking on the role of science advisory in government? Um, and I think that is also related to a couple of questions being asked by Jason Delborn and Katie Barnhill-Billing about the narratives of science-based policy and science is back. Um, so if any of the three people who uh, wrote those questions wanted to come on and elaborate slightly, you're welcome to, um, or the panelists can take it away. Well, I'll take, I'll take the one about the science is back um, question. And, and I, I think I'm understanding where Jason's coming from because I'm a little worried about that myself in the, um, science-based policy-making domain as well. I've often argued, argued, and many of you have heard me speak about this, that you can't make base decisions based on science alone in a society, whether they be regulatory decisions or decisions about what technology we pursue or not pursue, and that those involve value decisions and perspectives. Um, and and um, I am excited I am more hopeful given that we have a deputy director at OSTP and if the president does turn to OSTP for advice um, that we will have more of a nuanced and public engaged and stakeholder engaged model of whether the priorities of what we fund, the technologies that we want to develop or not or deploy into environments like gene drives and such. So I'm more hopeful about it. But I do think that the predominant, given Eric Lander and just how the rest of the science policy apparatus um, and the leadership, that there are very few people that acknowledge the role of values in decision-making and still, and I think it's because science has been threatened in so many ways by misinformation and disinformation in the last four years that they may even swing more in that direction and may even reject the incorporation of values even more in decision-making. And that certain values will, or their values, which science is primary and you know, we should move forward with a linear model of technology is good, it always leads to economic growth and therefore anything that anybody who critiques it may be marginalized. I'm a little worried that we're gonna continue down that road. However, it gives me more hope that um, Alondra Nelson is there. I think that's a big, a big deal. And if she is turned to for advice, and if the Biden administration turns to OSTP for advice, that that could perhaps help us with a more public engaged and stakeholder model of decision making in science that's more nuanced, where science provides information, it's science informed, but science, not science fully science-based decision-making and that we're more attentive to diverse values and perspectives from stakeholders in society. 
So one other thing that we can observe is uh, there is a, a separate debate that's going on about what is the role of science and policy and all that. And I actually, I think, uh, just, just to point out for historical reasons, those of you who are interested in the history of science, the last book that Van Ever Bush wrote was called Science is Not Enough. Um, and uh, I think that I think that's pretty widely understood. So if what we mean by science is back, I think it does, there is gonna be a big difference. We already see it. We look at how the, the withdrawal of the J&J vaccine was handled today. You have two scientists from FDA and, and uh, a person from CDC handling the questions instead of, uh, instead of the president or the vice president saying stupid things in front of a national audience. Um, so it's, it's a very different framework for, for handling science and technology. But uh, I don't think that means that science is now the, the king. Um, I think we're going to see a very complicated dance of how science advice is channeled into policymaking. Where this takes me, though, is there is a missing capacity in our government, um, particularly for Congress, which after the Gingrich revolution of, of 1994, lobotomized itself and wiped out the Office of Technology Assessment, reduced the number of staff in committees and uh, with long-term expertise and boosted the number of staff that do communications work and work in leadership offices. So shifted the power from committees to so-called leadership, uh, both the speaker's office and the majority leader's office what that has meant is a dumbing down of the ability to absorb scientific and technical advice in Congress. And there's been a movement that's being pushed by both think tanks on the left and the right, the far right, like the Cato Institute, R Street, American Enterprise Institute. There's a convergence of interests in building up the ability of Congress to handle science and technology information that has led to the, the Government Accountability Office building its uh, science, technology assessment, and analytics office, and even talk about bringing back the vaunted Camelot, uh, the Office of Technology Assessment, which was part of the U.S. Congress. Um, Dave, just I don't know if you're following that debate, but uh, I think that that something might happen on that front too. Yeah, no, I haven't paid super close attention to it, so that's interesting to hear. Um, but uh, I, I was just thinking. I think Eli, the the first question you read. Um, there was about whether the magnitude of some of these issues has, has made it um, justify sort of a rethinking of, of how this how science advice to government is handled. I, it's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I mean, I, I think my answer is no, <laughs> just in the sense that um, it is an issue of magnitude rather than than kind, right? Like it's um like yes, climate change is an enormous issue and and uh, an urgent issue and, and so on. And, and you could pick out a few other things that maybe you, you think of as sort of bigger than they used to be, but I'm not sure that that necessarily uh, means that the, that, that it sort of requires rethinking. I mean, it's not necessarily like um, the, the Van Ever Bush era when he was sort of, when, when there wasn't nothing before, there wasn't anything there before it, right? There was the Manhattan Project sort of grew up out of nothing and had not um, and, and that really led to this idea that there can be government-led scientific initiatives. <laughs> um, but now I, I think that's so well established and we do have all these, these sort of uh, disparate agencies that handle scientific issues in various ways that I, I'm not entirely sure that the fact that, you know, um, that, that climate change is very urgent, say, means they're, they're, that you should rethink the entire concept. I, I mean, I'm certainly open to the idea if, if there are good ones out there, but I, I guess I don't see the magnitude being um, sort of a, a reason to, to think that way. I, I don't know if, if Bob or Jennifer, if you guys have any thoughts on that. Well, I, I do. This is where I think, you know, the urgency and the magnitude. Actually, I would, I don't know if a, a whole restructuring of it, of it is, is important, but more of a bigger role for coordination across agencies. And that's where I, I would hope that OSDP would take a bigger role, I guess, mm -hmm. or, and have the authority to do so. And they don't have budget authority. Like they don't sign off on the agency budgets. They, they are consulted, but they're not like the agency doesn't have to okay their budgets with o, OSTP in a very formal kind of sign off way. 
And so maybe there's a role for Congress to expand in some of these big areas to expand OSTP's authority for more sign-off or decision-making authority so that we can move forward with greater strength in a coordinated way, because it is very, you know, it's so across multiple, these, these wicked problems are across multiple agencies. Um, so maybe not a full restructuring, but a higher granting of authority in some way. And I don't know what Bob or Dave think about that um, in their study of OSTP. No, that, that makes a lot of sense to me, actually. I mean, yeah, maybe maybe I was sort of hearing it a, a, the question a little bit wrong from the way it was intended. But yeah, that that does make sense that you sort of you change a little a little bit of how of the power that 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 does exist in that in that portion of government. And then that might actually help sort of push things forward in, in meaningful ways. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So, Eli, I was just noticing that Deb Matthews from Hopkins asked us a question about um, do you think the GAO office is actually going to make a difference? The science, technology, and analytics office that I alluded to, um, and uh, so I'll address that. Since and feel free, Jennifer and, and Dave, to, to weigh in. I have I have high hopes. There's zero zero possibility that it won't be an improvement over the status quo ante. Um, so it's going to be an improvement. Um, the question for the GAO is whether it's going to create a culture uh, that will allow enough freedom of the staff and the leadership to create a culture within GAO that really is highly respected by the scientific and technical and medical communities. OTA had that, and it took it 10 years to develop that. The early, the first five years of OTA were kind of a disaster, um, and it took a good 10 years to kind of get its legs under it. And then by the end, it was actually highly esteemed. It was a classic border organization that had to answer to a political apparatus on the one hand, Congress, and to the technical community, and it needed to maintain respect in both domains. GAO has respect on the political domain right now. It's going to have to earn that respect, and it earns that respect by demonstrating its independence. So we'll see if GAO can accommodate that cultural change. They could. That's going to be the same question, incidentally, that, that a DARPA within NIH is going to have to overcome, is can NIH actually, given all its ponderous inertial bureaucracy, create enough freedom for program managers to make swift, high-money decisions on high-risk projects? I don't know. But those are cultural questions, and those questions usually depend crucially on who the initial appointees are and who founds them and what culture gets established by the first movers in that organization. So we'll see. All right, um, unless someone else wants to weigh in on that question, um, I'll give you another. Uh, so this one actually comes from our list of pre-submitted questions, uh, which is in the scheme of maybe how leadership thinks about biotechnology, how much do agricultural applications shape the thinking versus medical or even defense? That one's for you, Jennifer. Well, I mean, it's clear to me that kind of biomedical is, is, is usually the primary focus when we talk about biotechnology. Um, however, I, don't, I think because of the, the long history of genetically modified organisms in the, in the food supply, it's always in the background. Now, whether or not that agricultural biotechnology and environmental biotechnology or ecological will be a priority for the next administration, I am not sure, um, to be honest. You know, it could be that um, the focus is more on gene editing for human health and, and biotechnology, genomics for health, um, given the not only the interests of the director of OSTP, but also the pandemic, I think, is, is, has had a lasting effect. Um, so I think I'm, yeah, I'm hesitant to say that it's going to take a primary role in policy discussions and OSTP discussions. It's always in the backgrounds of people's minds, though, when you talk about biotechnology and genomics and genetics, given our, you know, 30 some 30 plus year history with genetically modified foods and how that colored the relationship in that domain. However, the policy issues are very different. The risk benefit distribution is very different and it's almost a different ball of wax when you talk about 
um, biotechnology applied to food or the eco ecology as opposed to human health. And so it is a different ball of wax um, and we'll see if it gets attention in the next, um, in the next administration. It, it, tends to, it tends to not, and I, I had this on one of my last slides, but the agricultural biotechnology space and the activity of regulation tends not to correlate with the Democratic or Republican administration over time. It, it tends to correlate more with focusing events, um, like prominent national court cases, media, like controversies like Starlink and Monarch Butterflies and and things like that. And so, and now in the last administration, um, they they pretty much set the, the, the rule, the USDA rule, which was a huge change, one of the biggest change in agricultural biotechnology regulations since the early nineties. And I think I don't think that's gonna change, but there are some upcoming decisions about what to do about genetically engineered animals that maybe OSTP will bring the agencies together to revisit. Um, at the late in the Trump administration, they proposed to move many animals, most agricultural animals over to USDA from FDA. And that was pretty controversial. The FDA commissioner tweeted that he didn't agree with it, <laughs> Stephen Hahn in the last administration. So what I think OSTP is gonna have to bring the agencies together to deal with some of those things. They might work it out on their own, but again, it's possible that'll rise to the level of OSTP. I don't, I don't think it's ever going to usurp human health and medical applications of biotechnology, though, given, especially given the pandemic and really how much we relied on those for the vaccine and, and the you know, beautiful things that they brought us to, to help counteract this pandemic, and maybe rightfully so. The, the one thing that I would add to that, Jennifer, is I actually think that the debate, for example, about CRISPR, is actually going to be much more relevant for environmental and energy and plant and animal biology, then it actually, it, a lot of the Sturm and Drang has been about human heritable genome editing. Um, but, you know, if, if you look at the case closely, it's never probably going to be a hugely important, widely pervasive medical technology. The, the reasons that you would ever do it are not going to be very, uh, very common. Um, but there are lots and lots and lots of applications and most of those applications in environment, in ag, and in other areas don't have the kind of market dynamics of medical biotechnology where everybody is looking for a few patents that allow them to charge outrageous prices um, and outlicense uh, to startups and things like that. I think we're going to see a disruption of the ecosystem for biotech in the areas that aren't medical biotech. And it may creep into, that may be one of the things that carries over from the pandemic is rethinking how we handle intellectual property and technology licensing and things like that. And I think that might be driven by things like CRISPR in ag and environmental applications. So let, let's keep our eye on that. Well, I hope so, Bob, or I wouldn't be directing the center, but, <laughs> but so let's hope that it gets lots of attention in those areas. So I appreciate yeah, I actually, your optimism. I actually think that this, there's a chance in, in this administration, sort of based on the specifics of how it's being set up, so far, that the agricultural biotech could sort of sort of ride the coattails of, of other priorities. That because um, so, so okay, you have someone from the biotech world now leading OSTP. So clearly, that um, will be more of a focus. And then you have this sort of administration-wide focus on climate change, in particular, um, you know, across agencies and and across uh, offices. And there probably is some opportunity there to to focus on ag biotech that, you know, can help with emissions of, of the agricultural sector. There's a lot of opportunity there. Um, so it's sort of, you have this confluence of events in a way that maybe the the sort of, uh, the, the elevation of the, the science advisor to, to cabinet level, the appointment of someone from, from the biotech world, although yes, more on the, the health side, um, but then also with this other set of priorities, you could see, you know, I, I don't know exactly how this plays out, like the, how it manifests necessarily, but you could see somehow that it, it becomes more of a priority because of because of those sort of uh, intersecting interests, I guess. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And we certainly hope so. Um, you know, I'd love to see it. But I think riding the coattails is probably a good way of putting it. I think the medical, my point was that the medical and the health will probably always be at the forefront, but right. there will be some interest in the in the egg and environmental space. Yeah, good. 
Um, thank you. So I'm, I'm going to group another two questions from the chat. So Fred Gould asks, how are other countries like Britain and China determining science policy? Do they have an OSTP equivalent? And uh, Raul Medina asks, when it comes to science-based decision-making, do democratic frameworks place us at a disadvantage against non-democratic governances that are able to make quicker science-based decisions? Are we trapped in our system of government when it comes to the speed at which we can respond to challenges that involve science-based decision-making? Whoever asked that that last question, let me just send them back to Van Iver Bush's uh, encomium at the end of World War II. He was absolutely convinced that the reason that um, science and technology was deployed so much more effectively by the allied forces compared to Germany and Japan was that scientists and industry and government formed a partnership, what he called a partnership. And everybody gave up a little bit of their autonomy and they pulled in harness. And he thought that there was a very strong equivalence between uh, participatory democracy and the ability to deploy science and technology. I think China is in the process of challenging that by a form of state capitalism that seems to be able to deploy uh, and build partnerships of a certain type. We'll see where that's going to go. I I, I don't share Ben Eber Bush's Optimism that open democracies are the only way that you can have a flourishing science and technology community, but we'll see. Yeah, I would say New Zealand at least offers a pretty good counter and just in terms of rapid response to based on open democracies, right? I mean, they had a very science-based response to the pandemic that worked pretty quickly. And they, I mean, the other part of the question was about other countries. I, I can tell you that they have a very similar position, a science advisor to the prime minister um, that uh, I think played a, an enormous role in how they responded to the pandemic, at least. I know that's just one one example there, and it's a sm- much smaller country, of course, so different set of set of issues. But um, yeah, I think there there's actually enough science advisors to prime ministers and, and presidents that there is now a... Uh, a meeting, I think, that they hold every two years, um, an international meeting of of science advice to government. I forget the official name. I'd have to look it up. But um, so, yeah, the the concept has spread widely enough that um, there is sort of this international infrastructure for science advice to to executive branches of government. I mean, I don't know too much about, you know, the specifics in other countries, but yeah, there's that. All right, we are at 12.58. So if anyone wants to squeeze in a last quick question, you are welcome to. Um, I see no hands. Uh, So I'm gonna give you one quick one. Um, So can you comment uh, on the uh, relationship of Alondra Nelson um, and her history in gender studies to Eric Lander uh, and his sort of outsized personality, which uh, in the case of the CRISPR debate actually uh, led to some gender related tension. Uh, Do you see personal interactions that may end up shaping what happens uh, in government? Hopefully she'll she'll educate him. They were announced (laughs) at the same time and uh, that they've been presented as kind of a package and I think that was quite deliberate. Um, the other thing I'll observe is that Eric and, and Jennifer Doudna actually co-authored a paper just a week before he was announced as the nominee. So I think there's some explicit attention to some healing from the CRISPR uh, patent interference war uh, between Berkeley and the Broad Institute that must be going on. So Jennifer, Dave? I was just gonna say, hopefully she can continue to educate him um, <laughs> about paying more attention to women's contributions to STEM. Um, and, and, you know, where is our female science advisor? I think that's the whole thing. I think we should celebrate her and being there. And, but yeah, we need a female science advisor. If there was a commitment to gender, there would be a female science advisor to the president. And so hopefully, hopefully he will, hopefully they'll work together well, but, but, but I think we should all be a little disappointed that there has not been a female science advisor. Um, and, and we hope to see one in the future. So. But I think I think I am optimistic about this pair for biotechnology policy and, and society 
and societal issues. I mean, if OSTP is, is able to put forth initiatives um, like the National Nanotechnology Initiative for nanobio society funding, that would be fantastic in not only medical areas, but also agricultural and, and environmental areas where the applications are growing outstanding at an outstanding pace. So, yeah. I will right, second all of that. <laughs> we are right at one o'clock, um, so we'll go ahead and wrap up. I really want to thank our speakers again. Uh, GES is a sort of very large family that does a lot of collaborations, outreach, and events, uh, and we absolutely invite you to continue to be a part of that uh, in any capacity. Um, so thank you once again. Thank you, everyone, uh, and we will see you next week. Thanks for having me. Thank you.